This week's episode is brought to you by the Film Rescue Show. The Film Rescue Show is a long-form podcast in which their crew and a guest fix a film every week. Want a good first episode? Check out episode 89 with Axel and myself, where he pitched fixes for the League of Extraordinary Drummond. Still waiting on that call, Warner Brothers. For fans of filmmaking, writing, and behind-the-scenes content, check out the Film Rescue Show on all your favorite podcasting sites today. Welcome back, patrons, to the Horus Heresy Book Club. I'm Lord Commander Orc, and with me as always is... Your shield brother, Axel Wright. All right, we have a special one here, because obviously you've read the title, you know we're here. We'd like to welcome back to the show, author of Fulgrim, False Gods, and literally a ton of other great books, Mr. Graham McNeil. Good evening. How you doing, guys? We're doing pretty... I'm doing pretty excellent, all things considered. <laughs> Yeah, same here, you know, given all the travails of the world, we're, we're hanging in there and doing okay. Yeah, no, it's it's hot, but I know it's much hotter in other parts of the country, so I'm going to take the win for what it is. Yeah, true. it's pretty warm in LA today. It hasn't right. broken triple digits yet. Where yeah, you are, you know, it's in the I post. <laughs> and we're here today to talk about a great book. Last time we had Graham on, we were talking about False Gods. I am the newer person to the mm -hmm. Warhammer books and the Horus Heresy specifically. And now we've read Fulgrim, the, the fifth book also written by our guest. And he had told us uh, during the last recording that he would, you know, talk with us again when we read this book. And now here we are. So <laughs> looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Then should we just get right into the discussion or do you have Let's any get going? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything to hold back. I mean, people are here to hear the questions, and right. honestly, I want some answers. All right, well then, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> kick us off right off the bat and say that again, as someone who I am brand new to the horror series. Well, I shouldn't say brand. I mean, I've been in the hobby now for about two years, so I'm still new-ish, pretty new. And the horror heresy series has been really fun. I have, false gods was my favorite up until I read Fulgrim, <laughs> which is interesting. I feel like. Fulgrim is, and I don't know how to say this without being, I, I don't want to be disparaging because I like all the books I've read so far, but Fulgrim feels a lot more ambitious. Maybe it's the size, maybe it's like just the sheer level of detail, kind of slow burning a, a Primarch's fall, but it feels like the level of detail, the, the, the length, the like just everything in general feels like there's a lot more ambition at play here. So my first question simply would be, as from a writing perspective, what did it feel differently writing this one from writing False Gods? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're, you're you're right in the sense of it was more ambitious because by the time uh, I came to write Fulgrim, I I felt I'd grown more as a writer because False Gods was a a, a book that had simultaneous like joy for telling that story and terror of I'm a following Dan Abnett having written to date one of his best books in a brand new version of the IP. Um, but there was crutches there, you know, you were we'd mapped out more or less what we were doing for the, uh, the first two books and to a degree, the third one. Um, and I knew I always had, you know, Dan there to help out in terms of, I've got to this point, what, what, how, would, how would we go for it in that bit? What would happen here? And so on. And we'd, you know, when we were doing the first two books, certainly we were, going back and forth 
very regularly with, hey, could you introduce this guy in your story? Then I can tee it up for me so I can pay it off in the second book. Or I'd be like, I really need to do this thing in the book. Could you put that guy in your book so that it's there for me? So there was a lot of back and forth in that, whereas Fulgrim was a lot more of a solo flight. Uh, but in the time since doing False uh, yeah, false Gods to Fulgrim, I'd written quite a few books in between then, and 40k and Warhammer ones. So, I, I, you know, I felt, you know, okay, the first one did not explode. I, I, I got through it. I did it. So I felt by that point, you know, I could legitimately stretch myself in different directions and take a Primark from the pinnacle of his career to the depths of it without already having a lot of that groundwork set up for me, as Dan brilliantly did in Horus Rising. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was grander in scale in some ways because it had to take in the events of the first three books, well, first four books, uh, as well as being its own standalone story because events that kick off the book are set uh, before the events of False Gods and Horus Rising. Horus is still loyal at the beginning, so it goes from, you know, a Primarch who is literally in his prime. He's almost there at his peak of perfection as he sees it. And then to take him to the, you know, the depths of despair and degradation at the end. Depravity. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that felt like it, you know, I had a whole arc to cover there rather than just a piece of a longer story. It's funny because so Ulrich and I, you know, we did the book club. So while reading this, we did recordings of every uh, two chapters, sometimes three, sometimes one, depending on what was going on in the chapters. And we talked about how we were feeling about it. Ulrich has the advantage of having read it before. I'm going mm-hmm. in essentially blind. And one thing that we talked about multiple times, and I mean this in the, the most positive way, is that by the nature of who Fulgrim is as a character, he's not as, for lack of a better term, uh, investable as like Horus is because Horus is this mm-hmm. big charming kind of thing but both Ulrich and I agreed that while we weren't as quote unquote invested in Fulgrim himself as we were with Horus his fall was a lot more emotionally impactful and we still are kind of parsing how that works but it was something <laughs> that just really impressed me that you could take a character that I on the surface seemed to care not quite as much about, but I care way more about the events that are happening to him. And I, I felt it was mm. like maybe because the nature of the fall was more drawn out, but I felt like I much I understood Fulgrim a lot more certainly. Yeah. <laughs> like it, naming the book I after think, him certainly makes sense. He's definitely the main character. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think we can we can all relate in some way to what Fulgrim went through, and we all. We all you know we want to do our best. We want to think that we were good at a thing. And if it's revealed as it is to him at some point that he's not as good as he thinks he is, you know, that is to somebody who is, you know, borderline narcissistic to the point of madness. Uh, that sort of personality type when they are wounded, when they have setbacks, they, they lash out. But at the same point, you know, he, you know, like the, what's interesting is, is taking characters who we can see something of ourselves in, but taken to the next level. You know, like we hopefully, when our setback, when we are knocked down, we, you know, dust ourselves off, get back on the horse again and try again. Fulgrim kind of lacks that sensibility. You know, when he's knocked down, it's it's everybody else's fault but his. It's because you don't understand me. You're not clever enough to get the level at which I operate. And that wound does not heal in him. Whereas 
generally speaking for most people it does you know you, you get over it you know the the time heals all wounds but that just does, that's not part of his makeup and and i think as, as we said before <clears throat> pardon me the you know the, the essence of a tragic story is of a a main character who is perhaps brilliant in many in many ways but has one terrible flaw that will be their undoing that they just cannot see and fulgrim's obviously for his pursuit of perfection at the cost of all else is his and he but he doesn't see it that way oh uh, you know i i'm definitely not going to bogart all the questions from Warwick. i want to give him his time to shine but i will say that what you just said there maybe go right back to what is i think like easily top three favorite moments in the book which is uh when i never can pronounce his name i don't have in front of me vespasian 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 his death uh, again, and by the way, I say, yeah, if you're listening to this and you haven't read Fulgrim, I mean, first of all, thank you for just finding us interesting, but you should go read Fulgrim because we're going to talk yeah. about spoilers. You're, you're doing yourself a major disservice because a lot of this is going to go right over your head. And we have other episodes. With, there's another episode with Graham McNeil for False Gods. If you really want to hear him talk about Space Marines, we've got that. Okay. But but anyway, so, spo- so spoilers ahead. But with Vespasian's death, that, that idea of that the, the entity needs to have something a flaw of some sort to grip into mm-hmm. uh, otherwise it it has no power like there was something it's a small scene but i felt it was very mm-hmm. important to the entire narrative of the entire book and oh, it really yeah. stuck with me for that reason i mean it's so. a mo- it's a line it's a really important line for fulgrim to cross at that point when he, he murders you know one of his own yeah exactly anyway <laughs> all right okay give you a question so that because i asked like two and then two half ones <laughs> <laughs> so i'm kind of curious what your process for planning out this book was considering it is introduce the character have the character fall have the character's legion fall and have it all do it in one book mm-hmm. that feels like it's a massive undertaking and i'm curious if like you had any constraints or was there a moment of shock like did i take on too much uh I mean, the, the, every page you have that feeling. Every page you think, I think I've bitten off too much here, more than I can chew. But I mean, with Fulgrim, uh, it was more than more than most other books I've written before or since. Uh, it was planning, planning the arcs out, planning the downfall out. Because one of the one of the things I was very conscious of was that I only, you know, I had one book to tell the story, and uh, it was, you know, it was a chunky book still, but still only one book but I, I you know i had to make sure that his fall felt believable that it felt like it was a series of small steps rather mm-hmm. than one gigantic plunge off the cliff so you know each one of those steps taken in isolation you could look at it and go well you know i get why he did that you know i, I can see you know given the circumstances you might think that that was the sensible choice and it's not that big a deal you know it the earlier ones certainly maybe not the later ones but uh you know it's like the you know you're going around the, the supermarket you know you pick out one of the grapes and you eat it and it's like yeah it's no biggie but then by the time you've taken a hundred of those tiny steps and then look back at where you started from it's like wow okay i've come to, i've fallen a long way from where i began where i thought i stood um so structurally wise it was I, it was a fairly standard sort of you know tragedy where you you know the 
the hero makes their choice or the hero, the main character makes their choice. And first of all, it's a, it's an age of wonder. Things are going well. I like this. This new choice was great. I, I made the right call in doing the thing. But then gradually things start to unravel for them and everything they do just drives them deeper and deeper into the hole until eventually, you know, the, the, the forces of order, so to speak, you know, rail against them and come to, you know, take what is due to them. But in, you know, most tragedies of, you know, like Shakespearean style things, the, the, the hero gets their comeuppance, you know, they, you know, Macbeth is killed in his castle, you know, Hamlet dies at the end and so on. Whereas, and in this one, certainly you could argue that something similar happens, you know, Fulgrim does, you know, quote unquote, die. You know, the being that is the noble Primarch is, you know, locked away in a tiny cell inside his own mind, watching this demon wreak horrors in his name with his face. So he does get his comeuppance in a way, even though the, the being that looks like Fulgrim still continues. So structurally, it was, it was fairly, uh, fairly easy to do because it fought, pretty much followed the, you know, the, again, quote unquote, template for the tragic arc of a character. The, the, the hardest part of it for me in this case was uh, getting the timeline working with the first three books and making sure that I didn't end up just repeating a bunch of the stuff that happened in there. So, you know, these things were all important. You know, these moments had to be referenced. They had to play into the story. But by the same token, I couldn't just like rip text from one or one or two of the earlier books and slap it straight into Fulgrim. I mean, there's there's moments where, uh, you know, like a relay race, we did handoffs. So there's a scene in uh, False Gods where Fulgrim and Horus meet and they walk off camera and we don't, you know, we don't see what happens. But in the book, Fulgrim, we do. We, we see that moment taken on from the point where they left, you know, where they exit stage left. Um, and they, we do see the outcome of that. So they're, you're, you're still seeing the important beats of the story play out, but just from, you know, a different angle of the stage or from a moment that finished early in one and carries on in the next. So finding the moment, finding the right dramatic moments to pass the baton from one story arc to the next while still maintaining that integrity of readers understanding of what was going on was the trickiest part and making sure that the fall felt gradual but inevitable i i really like your multiple references to a theater terminology especially you mentioned shakespearean and i had actually mentioned in one of the, the our book club things that it felt very shakespearean yeah, and actually say, we we talked about this feeling very like a shakespearean tragedy you know the ending and you're watching it go like this slow avalanche and you can't do anything about it and it's just heartrending uh, that's that's the thing I, I mean perversely or not that's the thing i love about the tragedy as a thematic arc for a story is like you know going in this is going to end badly and like most stories it's the journey the journey is the, the the fun part it's seeing how i know going into certain books or movies it's going to end a particular way but that's kind of irrelevant i just want to see how we're going to get there and how much fun or horror we have along the way I, i'm or sure there are many word. Yeah, I'm sure there are many words for that. I always called it the Perry Mason thing, where like, you know, Perry Mason's going to win the case. It's not about if he wins, it's how he mm -hmm. wins. So, but speaking of knowing the ending and still, you know, getting pulled in, one thing I want to ask about is I, I had done my lore research just for funsies. So I know a lot about the heresy. Like I knew about 
Ferris Manis's fate. <laughs> so I was not at all expecting him to quickly become like one of my favorite Primarchs just from what little scenes he has. So that's something I want to ask you about mm-hmm. is particularly writing for him, considering he's, you know, not in a whole lot of the book, but he's he's a very important player considering he's yeah. kind of a minor player. So and there's something I mentioned to Ork a few times, how he feels more for lack of a better term, like mortal. <laughs> I don't like yeah, that <laughs> word. More relatable. More, yeah, more human. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to ask you about uh, writing Ferris specifically. So Yeah. Yeah. Ferris was written explicitly with that feeling in mind that's I you know I wanted to evoke that sense of humanity because Fulger and Ferris you know he's connected to the to the earth and a very the earth as in his planet in a very physical way you know he you know the the silver hands from the fighting the worm and he was he works with his hands he's very connected to things like that he works with his hands and he's got a, a real humility to him you know he's the absolute antithesis of Fulgrim in, in that sense so making him relatable and human and likable was entirely deliberate precisely because when he dies at the end at the, the hands of his best friend so he thinks leading up to that moment you know it, it was that much more impactful because if if Ferris had just been a kind of robotic or blink and you miss some cameo the when when he dies at the end, it wouldn't have had the same effect on Fulgrim as it does, because that's the the real sort of you know horror of that moment is not that he's not that he's killed his best friend, which is bad enough, but he sees at the moment of his death all the moments that Ferris was trying to help him, all the moments Ferris was trying to talk him back from his own self destruction, all the things he thought were attacks on him, all the things he thought were disparaging comments, where the you know the, the desperate acts of a brother trying to save his best friend so knowing that he could have stepped back from the edge but didn't and his best friend is now dead because of it was that just that extra you know twist of the knife the rubbing of the salt and the squeezing of the lemon juice into that wound i i know the line that stuck out with me most that really and i felt like <laughs> i feel like i'm just uh I'm just fanboying at this point, but it just was really impressed me that the complexity in the line, at least the way I see it, was the with tears in his eyes. Uh, oh, where he says with tear, like with tears in his eyes, Ferris says, "I know you're not lying, and that's why you have to die." And I just felt like there was so much going on in that one moment to tell you about who Ferris is as a person that it just it kind of blew my mind. So, excellent, guys. It was a yeah. There's a there's a bunch of the lines. I mean, I, I that scene at the end got worked and reworked and reworked over and over again just to make because I just I, you know I, I wanted it to have maximum impact for all the things that were happening and the the relationship between them that was now you know irrevocably destroyed. Um, so I, you know the dialogue was doing double and triple duty for you know text and subtext and sub subtext and so on and levels of ambiguity that I, you know you hope the reader will take away and going i i'm not sh- that could mean this and it could mean that and did he oh that's you know i i wanted to make it feel appropriately emotional and have that level of complexity to some of the dialogue there that left you left an impact so all right all right your turn <laughs> Now that works perfectly because that goes to my question because the end of this book is a one-two 
combo gut punch in that you go from this heart-wrenching moment of brother murdering brother and you are just so floored by it because you've really come to like this character and all the tragedy plays out and you get Fulgrim going through the process followed by I I want to be away from this and then his tragedy of and now he's trapped in his own mind seeing all of the horrible things he's did all the horrible things that happened to his legion and realizing he can't do anything about it and I want to know how you kind of came up with that ending because you have two really good horrible endings here and you just put them both in at the same time uh again some of that came from like the the original lore uh of that moment and we wanted to think the thing i I wanted to make clear all the way through the story was that these things were all driven by fulgrim's choices you know it wasn't he wasn't deceived in the sense of literally lied to. He wasn't possessed at that moment. So that 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 the language around that final moment, I hope, makes it clear that you know, Fulgrim, the demon relinquishes its control of him, and it's, and the choice to kill Ferris comes from Fulgrim. It doesn't come from the demon. The demon doesn't drive his arm. It kind of lifts its control over him, and Fulgrim's still kind of in the grip of his own narcissism uh, delivers the death blow. And, you know, again, the true cruelty of the demon at the end of it is that it drops the veil from it. It pierces that narcissism to show him the reality of how he has behaved and all that he has done for him to realize, oh, my God, this was all me. I did this. I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't out of my mind i wasn't you know because it just it abrogates him of responsibility if it's not him that's doing it and it had to for the the true emotional you know as you say one two gut punch you can forgive fulgrim if it's not him doing it oh you were you know you're your your hawkeye mind controlled it wasn't really you it's like no this was you everything was you you know that like the same with horus the demon tells you selective truths and lets your own flaw fill in the blanks with venom you know, it's funny, that's something we said multiple times in our, our reading, that while Fulgrim is very obviously being uh, manipulated, we never once got the feeling that there wasn't, that, that that he, we never felt like it abdicated him of the responsibility of the decisions he was making. So Yeah, yeah, he had to have agency all the way through to the point, because if a, if a character's choices are not really their choices then you immediately detach somewhat from the investment in them. You're like, well, okay, if this 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 plot's on rails then, you know, it doesn't matter what the character does. It's going to get to where it gets to regardless. So, yeah, it, it was, I, I wanted to be very clear at every step of the way that this was him driving every single choice. Yes, he's being, you know, gaslit and lied to, but he's his primark. He's supposed to be smart enough to see through these things, but... That's, you know, the, the the genius of chaos is that once the, the crack in the door is open, it's just this steady drip, drip, drip of, of doubt, of uncertainty, of insecurity. And, and to me, that's what Fulgrim was. I mean, he was, you know, there's a chronic core of insecurity within him that where if, if I'm not perfect, then I'm, then I'm not good enough. If yeah. I'm not perfect, then I'm worthless. We, we talked about that, and that was such a cool thing to write into him is – Everyone views him as this demigod. His sons view him. Everyone else views him. He is the son of the emperor. But he's plagued by this chronic sense of doubt 
that he can never be good enough. And it's this weird little flaw that is perfect that just sets up his character. Everything you know about him is right there. He mm-hmm. doesn't think he can be as good as he is. Yeah, and he has to. He feels he has to prove himself like every single moment that he is this good because you know the, his legion was nearly destroyed back at their inception, so they had to make up a lot of time <clears throat> and a lot of uh, conquest and glory they had to win to try and re- you know cement their reputation amongst brother legions who'd been out there earning glory for decades ahead of them. Uh, and I think you know at, at some level we can all relate to to some aspect of the wanting to please somebody and feeling that you'll never be good enough you know and it's a it's a horrible feeling i know you know so i wanted to expose that in everybody <laughs> well it works so well because he pairs great with ferris manis who's like i'm not the best but i'm good at what i do and that's okay yeah. and it's just this great and you get why they're brothers you get this yeah. i mean they, they, they're com- they complement one another and it's it's all it's always the pairings where there's friction that are going to be the most interesting to mine for you know story drama i mean it's the same reason you know skipping ahead some here but the same reason that i pair fulgrim with uh perturabo in angel exterminatus you know they're they're two characters who should not get along but and indeed fairly you know don't really <laughs> but um there's drama there that friction between them creates interesting moments and as i say, you know that's why i thought they'd be ferris and fulgrim would be I mean, they're in the lore anyway, as being in this place of friendship and brotherhood and so on. But I really wanted to, you know, emphasize that along the way. Because Ferris is such a, you know, like you say, a a human character compared to Fulgrim's one. So the book, right, named after a Primarch. We've been talking a lot about Primarchs. But in the Heresy, some of my favorite characters have been people like Keeler and Carcassi and Mm. whatnot. So I want to take a moment to ask about two of the the most important non-augmented characters in in this one, Ostian and Serena de Angelis. Particularly, I want to focus on Ostian's narrative and Serena's horror, because the level of writing that went into Serena uh, made me genuinely uncomfortable. (laughs) So... (laughs) Excellent. Like I, I like I wrote down how I think we talked about how like in False Gods uh, in the the zombie or what we would call the Poxwalker mm-hmm. kind of sequence, you're writing very I feel like very well conveyed the horror of Nurgle and then in here Serena De Angelis and then of course the opera later but very well conveyed what I think of when I think of the horror of Slanesh. Slanesh, so. yeah, yeah. I mean Slanesh has always been a uh, you know, it's been a, a tricky chaos god to approach at times because I think some of the perceptions of what Slanesh is um, have, you know, rightly or wrongly skewed a certain direction. Given it's a little juvenile, some of, the art, some of the models, some of the writing, we've, you know, yeah. over the years, you know, and I, you know, I hold my hand up to some of that as well. But you know, Slanesh to me is always it's it's excess, excess in all things, whether it is martial ability whether it is sensuous languidness whether it is painting art music whatever it is it's taking it taking it all too far you know it's it's things that should be glorious but taken to the next level which makes them dangerous or monstrous and so on um so their stories were ones that i very deliberately chose to invert from the er earlier books because remembrances in the earlier books were always kind of like collateral damage in a lot of the stories they were the ones who recorded 
the, the terrible things that the Astartes did and were essentially dragged down with them. You know, when the Astartes fell, the remembrances were along for the ride. They were either, you know, murdered by the Astartes or caught in the crossfire between them. Whereas the, in this one, I decided I didn't want them to do that. I wanted them more or less to be leading the charge. It's actually, it's them that bring the, the taint properly, fully on board. Because when they actually, go down kinda. to... <laughs> exactly, Becky Kinska, when they go down there, and Serena, and they, when, I mean, Ostian is lucky in, when he's denied the chance to go down to the Coral City, and not the Coral City, the, the Lair Temple. Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's... You know, he thinks, oh, my God, this is the, um, the defining moment of my career and I'm missing it. But actually, he's the, the fortunate one that he doesn't get exposed to the, the the slaneshi vibes and chaos power that permeates, you know, the very air of that temple. So although the, the Astartes feel it, but they're like, what the hell is this? It just it, 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 they recoil from it at that, that brief touch. They're like, no, 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 this, something is not right here. But the humans, you know. The human heart is weak and they fall for it. No, I don't mean fall for it as in their trick. They <laughs> they fall into that and they absorb it and you know, putting, you know, artists, composers, you know, the the very expressive creative types in the midst of something that is a sensory overload is naturally gonna be, you know, desirable to them. They're gonna like walk towards this and want to embrace it and explore it in all its splendor. And that's they essentially bring that contagion back with them, and certainly in Serena's interactions with Fulgrim, she passes that on to him, and it's not like a, like a physical infection, but it's you know it's a spiritual malaise that she brings back, and then goes on to infect Fulgrim when she talks about her paintings, his statue, and he, he, she talks about the one, the the, the sculpting he does, and exposing the flaws by it not having flaws. You know that that opens the door in, in his mind to that slaneshi you know uh influence within him and plus you know obviously he's got the the sword with him as well which is like it's like this you know it's like the the this tap 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 at the door that now that he's got that influence from serena and the other remembrances who came back kinska as well you know it's, it's like it's, it's it's tempting enough to him to open the door to that to let in go you know, because again, in his hubris, he thinks, well, you know, I'm, I can control this. I'm cool. This is cool. I can quit anytime I want. <laughs> you know, because a lot of a lot of chaos, a lot of the, the metaphors, a lot of the thinking behind it, you know, comes from the same kind of terminology as addiction. You know, it's a very much a, you know, once once you're in that place, you're not coming out. I mean, you could. You, you know, unless you're like one of the, you know, sensei or, or illumina, you know, get thing burnt out of you and now you're never going to be touched by it again. These taints never leave you. And that's, that's again, again, there's a lot, a lot of metaphors that are in similarities in that regard for this. But uh, but speaking of taint in a bit more literal sense, um, <laughs> the, I, I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if when you were writing Serena Every now and then there was just like a sticky note next to you that said more gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah, appropriately a sticky note. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've said before, like whenever I'm writing horror or stuff that is like a bit, you know, over the line or could potentially be over the line, I always think it's best to go hard and go as fast and 
far over the line as you can, you know, because I would much rather do something that was people read, you know, like my, my editor, you know, in this case, that they that she would read it. And in this case, Lindsay and go, holy crap. No, no, come on. Mm. No, we, we can't have that. Let's pull it back to a level that is fine. And then fine. OK, yeah, we'll do that. I mean, I, cause I, I, I knew bits of it were pushing the envelope and what we could legitimately put oh, in a book no, uh, I, but having said I'd, i would much rather go too far and have pull back to where the line is than not go up to the line and come up with something that was you know a little bit bland or could have been taken to the next level but we didn't so well i thought it was very that, adept at uh at using implication to tell a reader Here's the gross thing that's happening without us having to say exactly yeah, what yeah. is happening. You, so. you'll supply the imagery better than I could. If I if I set you up for it, your brain will carry on to the place that's grosser than is actually on the table. You know, it's yeah. like like in in Reservoir Dogs where Mr. White uh, attacks the cop. Mm. Actually, you see very very little of that moment your brain supplies it and you're like oh my god this is horrible but when you watch that scene again you don't actually see the thing you thought you saw um well it's uh, also so a psycho I, I tried to yeah i mean i tried to keep it you know on the right side of publishable but only just <laughs> yeah I, I will admit uh without without having to talk about it there was a line right at the end where uh where the, the demon masquerading as Fulgur mentions this sublime rain that pushed me too far. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. So. <laughs> yeah, and there, I always thought, you know, I remember writing at the time thinking, oh, well, you know, when half of this inevitably gets cut, we'll have to, you know, have a sort of unofficial dark web director's cut. Oh, no. This book. But in uh, the reality of it is, there was only really one scene had to get trimmed a little bit, but that was it. Just what, you know, it was. Uh, it was a, a scene where Serena lures this hapless other remembrance her back to her quarters to harvest him for painting materials, shall we say? Um, and there was a couple, there was a couple of lines in there needed to get paired back, and that's absolutely fine. And I, I know I even writing them, I was like, these are never going to get, this is never going to get past the editors. But you know what? I'm going to put it in, and if they say to cut it, fine, no problem. But so then, most of the rest of it was was no problem. Yeah, and then uh, one more thing about Ostian and, and Serena that I think is interesting. You mentioned how you kind of inverted them from previous Remembrancers, which I think is interesting because I, I hadn't thought about that. But I had figured that Ostian and Serena themselves are kind of an inversion of each other with how they're reacting because both of them are being impacted by what's going on on, on the ship. But their way of getting it – like Serena is full on in it. As you said, harvesting people for parts – and Ostian has completely closed himself off from everything to pursue his craft separate from everyone, whereas Serena is literally involving people directly in what yeah. she's doing. So I thought that was interesting that both of them come to quite literally the same fate by reacting to what's going mm -hmm. on in opposite ways. I, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the, you know, a, a, a lot of the... the the principles of storytelling, you know, that, that I like to do is like that, you know, the, that unity of opposites. You know, you have Fulgrim and Ferris, Austin and Serena, you know, human and Astartes, and so on. Trying to keep those opposites coming, coming at each other from different approaches, being something, you know, embracing the elements of the plot, same elements of the plot, but in wildly different ways. 
but which ultimately bring them to the same point because you know the the fact when you've got opposites only one of them will come out of it you know when when those opposites clash story-wise character-wise emotionally only one of them gets to continue you know it's, you know most scenes you have like you know the the premise uh, you know the, the of the of the plot any of the you know the antithesis of that moment and then that clash brings on the next scene brings on the next moment and so on but when you have those opposites at, at, at crucial points in the story only one of them gets to go forward and that was very you know very much the a lot of the, the thematic running through the entire story of opposites colliding and friction coming out of that drama coming out of that and often you know you know some of those things allow you know the depending on the scale of the clash they allow both elements to continue to circle back again because you know opposites attract they inevitably will come back together again later on in the story but when the clashes of such you know become such a magnitude only one can walk away and that's if that happens time and time again through the book there's a whole bunch of opposites clashing colliding coming away clashing coming away until they keep getting so hard that you know like fulgrim is the only one to walk away you know well to be fair neither austin and serena get to walk away at the end of it but he austin makes that choice to join her at the end so to speak well other way but yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah sorry yes that's right she doesn't make the choice sorry wrong one been a long time since i've read this book no worries I got into 40K by reading your books, and one of the first things I noticed was your ability to write epic, easy-to-follow battle. Even Axel kind of noticed because he's not a big fan of the battle scenes. That's not what he's reading these books for. He enjoys them, but it's not his thing. And even he noticed that these were a whole nother level, especially the Battle of Istvan 5. And I'm kind of curious... What's your secret for writing these big, epic, easy-to-follow battles? Yeah, I mean, I, it comes from uh, a, you know a, a few places that you know I love I love uh, I love maps. I'm a big big believer in maps, and certainly ah. when I'm when I'm writing out, uh, especially a battle scene, you know, because like I, I grew up on like Donald Featherstone's books about wargaming, and a lot of them would be like wargaming out, you know, the, the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Lewes, Stamford Bridge, Falkirk, what have you. And there'd be all the little diagrams of the little, like we used to have, like in the old White Dwarfs, with the battle reports of the little blocks with, you know, spearmen and orc boys and stuff like this. And they'd move around. The, so you could always picture where all the miniatures were in the battle report or where the soldiers were in a particular battlefield. And I, and I would always, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll I know like the emotional beats and the character beats that I've got to get in the story. Okay, so I need Fulgrim and Ferris here at this point. Okay, I need to get the Morlocks around there. So I'll, I'll write out, a, you know, not, it will be in any great detail, but it'll be a quick sketch of, <clears throat> okay, here's here's where the combatants start. Okay, then I can do a scene with Fulgrim, seeing them coming onto the field. Okay, then they move around. These guys go to flank them. Okay, right, I can do a scene of Ferris watching that moment in the battle. And it's, you know, you, you vary your altitude when you're writing. I like to vary my altitude when I'm writing a battle. So sometimes I'll be, you know, up at 10,000 feet watching the entirety of the battlefield, plotting out and informing the reader, OK, these guys are over here. That's happening there. This clash happens in here. Sometimes you'll be down at ground level with the combatants in amongst the, the swinging swords and the blood splattering, the helmet visors and so on. So you you pull out as much as you need to to 
give the reader the sense of what's happening so they feel they they understand what is happening and then zoom in on the moments that really require that level of immersion where you want the reader to be in the thick of the fighting and you know reading fat you know like when you're like you know it's, it's an obvious sort of kind of trick so to speak but you know when you're writing a combat scene keeping the a lot of white space in the page keeping the sentences short keeping it punchy lots of declarative language that forces the reader to read quickly and when they read quickly they're they're you know they're a bit breathless they're moving with the pace of the action and then you pull a little bit further out give a bit of, you know give the the reader a bit of a chance to breathe in a sense because it's all about tension and release tension and release so every, t- every once you've had a moment of high drama and tension, you know, like, you know, when Julius is, gets gets all horribly burned in the middle of the battle, then we pull back out again to, to give us a chance to sort of emotionally breathe again and feel the shape of the battle, how it's moving, and then just plunge back in again to another emotional moment there. So it's changing the altitude as you need to, coming in when you need to, just always you can give the, the reader a an understanding of the shape of what's happening I, I don't know why well i do know why but your description made me think of like waves on an ocean i'm going to refer to it as wave writing from now on <laughs> i know i'm going to steal that tm <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, man, I, i've written a whole a lot of battle scenes so it's just it's figuring out what works for any and it's always that the, the character of the story will tell you what needs to happen because sometimes you need okay i need to get this character from here to here and that's going to take them a while so okay i'll do with this scene over here then come back to them when they've had the time to move and all all the moments that you choose to zoom in on are all ones that either help develop you know depending where the battle sits in the course of the story you know they either help you develop the characters because you know you see how they fight how they react to things and so on you learn more about them through the, the their actions during it or you know if it's towards the end you might you, you get payoffs to, to certain you know arcs that you set up or moments that you've built towards you know like Fulgrim and Ferris is a very much a culmination of their arc throughout the book. Yeah, it's funny because Ulrich is right that I generally have not been a big fan of of the battle sequences in these books. I know that I dislike them, but they're not usually why mm-hmm. I read. But I have enjoyed like so I've now read you know five books from four different authors. And I like all of them, but I I like your style of battle writing more, and I, I couldn't quite figure out why. I've still been yeah. analyzing that, but I'm going to pay more attention to what you've just yeah, talked about. Every, every battle is a every it should serve. It can't. I see it can't just be bolter porn. Of course it can, and there's, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with a whole bunch of people shooting each other and stabbing each other in the head with chainswords. All good. I mean, I'd, I'd love that as much as the next reader. But I, I you know, if I'm writing it, I I mean, I. I like to put more than there, so there's, it's not just a fight for fight. Well, it's ten pages have gone past and nobody stabs somebody with a chainsaw. Basically, <laughs> I'm another battling. You know, it's it's some it serves a purpose. It serves to emotionally invest us in a character, to reveal more about them, to twist a, a plot point around and send us off in a different direction or something. It's got to serve a purpose beyond just being a cool fight. And you know, a cool fight is great, but if it can do more than that, all the better. All right. So so one thing I definitely wanted to touch on with you know, with a writer, especially, but uh, is that it's becoming more common knowledge uh, among you know people now that the term grimdark originates with 
uh, with Warhammer. People have been using that. I used that term for years before I ever knew it came from Warhammer. But with the hobby getting a little bigger the last few years, I, I'm seeing that that knowledge more and more. Now, I know that from a narrative kind of perspective, Grimdark has some complex kind of meaning. I generally interpret it as being so dystopian as to have no hope at all, mm-hmm. and sometimes so over the top it, with it that it's it comes back into ridiculousness. And with that in mind, I know the setting of 40K is grimdark, but I haven't felt like any of the heresy books have been. And that's not a positive or a negative, just an observation. They've been more kind of, uh, you know, straight kind of narratives, which I I like them. Fulgrim was the first one that started feeling like it was really dipping its toes into grimdark, mostly with how absolutely hopeless a lot of the scenes were getting. I think I first got that vibe with Vespasian's uh, death. Mm. So... As an author, and as an author who's worked in in this setting, what does Grimdark mean to you, and how do you think it applies or does not apply specifically to this book? Uh, In terms of, I mean, I think you're you're spot on in your observation that you hadn't particularly uh, felt it colossally up until now, because the, the vibe of 40K novels certainly is that this is a, a galaxy at a minute to midnight. This is all falling down. There's all the dreams that we had are dead and in ashes, and we're just holding on to the last gasp of our empire by our fingertips. The heresy books are the opposite of that. You know, they start out from a place of great optimism. You know, the the dream that that's been centuries, millennia in the making is right there. We can see it. We can smell it. It's within our grasp and we're going to get it. And it's not up until I think Fulgrim, you know, because Fulgrim ends at the Istvan massacre. That's that's the, the real turning point where like there is no going back from here. This is the beginning of full grim dark. Everything is only everything's only going to get worse from here in because you know, potentially up till this point it might have been avoided. We could have maybe stopped it if we'd gone in and like decapitated the leadership got horus this would never have had, you know one planet boom it's over cool that was a bump in the road but we're still going forward after istvan three and five there's nothing you know you cannot come back from that uh so that's the beginning really of the, the full grim darkness i mean i mean what it means to me is yeah it's a kind of you know grand grignol overdose of everything's horrible and we're all going to die and we, we can't do anything about it and everything is meaningless. It's to the point of nihilism. Um, whereas that that's that's never appealed to me, you know, strangely given a lot of the fiction I choose if to I, If I may interrupt you for just a moment, Go. I apologize. I will say no, that no, one, no. Thing, one thing I like in what I consider grim, dark kind of narratives is, and I, I, was, I was watching a video talking about this, is that for me, a lot of what happens in Grimdark is that, yes, there is no hope in the reward or hope light at the end of the tunnel. So you instead find your meaning in the action itself. In the struggle. That, yeah, the struggle itself has inherent meaning. And to me, that's kind of a, mm-hmm. a kind of a strong kind of message. I actually feel that's, it a lot from, that, yeah. from someone like Garrow, for example, but that's another story entirely. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really good definition. And that's something that really speaks to how I like to interpret the, the certainly the, the the Warhammer settings that 
because I, you know, I, I'm, I don't like say, I don't like the idea that there is never hope, and no matter how bad things get in any of my books, there's always a sliver of hope. There's always a thing that we can do. So I, I don't know, I, because I, I, I love the, the heroic part of heroic fantasy, which I ascribe the, as a label to a lot of, the, if not all of the 40k and Warhammer stuff I've done, because. You know, there's even in the, the the novels where something te- you know the ending is te- you know terrible and everybody dies or whatever. There's usually one character, one moment of hope left in it because it's you know like Pandora's box. Once all the horrors were unleashed, there was still that one little light left at the end of it. You know, hope. Uh, and I think a grim dark setting it doesn't work without it because if there's not something to strive for even the tiniest flicker that something might change then like you say the struggle is pointless but you know not the struggle but the existence is pointless the struggle is what matters and so on but i you know that doesn't if there is never any hope it feels like nothing in the stories matter and if if you write something where nothing matters or the characters or the in that that world inhabiting it understand on some deep core level that nothing they do matters i i my feeling is that that passes to the reader and they understand that nothing matters so even if they win this fight by the end of the novel they're all probably going to die in a horrible accident tomorrow or they'll get eaten <clears throat> in the warp the week after so it's I, I I get and I and I enjoy playing in that space, you know. Maybe I'm just not committed enough to to go full grim dark, but you know, I always I, I love giving my characters, even if they don't sub, even if they don't consciously articulate it. The way I write them or the way I try to write them is that they always feel that there is no matter how hopeless things are there's still a way that we can win or way that we can make a difference somehow that our struggle will have meaning. Even if we all die, it may inspire somebody else. It might just turn the dial infinitesimally that over time will have a good outcome. That's exactly why I wanted to ask that question because it, especially from an author's perspective, it seems to me like grimdark is the kind of thing that, is for lack of a better term, I'm gonna get really hacky and use a food metaphor. It's like seasoning, it's flavoring, it's you you put mm-hmm. it onto your already existing story. But if you go all of that, if you put a spoonful of cinnamon you in your destroy mouth, destroy the flavor of the thing you're cooking. Yeah. Yeah. So. So yeah. Okay. Ulrich. All right. So when I first started reading these books, particularly this book, I was relatively to 40k horse heresy i didn't really know any of the factions so when the iron warriors the alpha legion the word bears and the night lords all show up i'm like oh cool these guys are here don't know who they are but and then when the big reveal is oh they've gone traitor was this big shock twist and i talked to you later like wait you you didn't know those guys were like no i thought they were still the good guys i didn't know that happened and I just, I've always kind of wondered, it's like, well, wait a second. Most people reading this know they're the traitors, but this book is written like, nope, here come the reinforcements. And I wondered, like, was that on purpose for, like, people, like, getting into this for the first time? Or were you just thinking, like, well, maybe they turn traitor later. You don't know what point in the heresy they fall. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of people, when they came to this, 
yes, they they knew that these guys were traitors. But I I prefer to write it as if you're coming to this. This is this is the beginning stories of what makes the Imperium the Imperium. This is the founding stories, the creation myth of the Imperium. So I, I told it from the point of view is you don't know these people. They're you know and it. To have the characters react in the, with the horror that they feel when they realise that the people who they think are coming to save them are actually there to destroy them, you know that would have been lessened if if you or if I had conveyed to you that these guys are bad guys and they're running towards the bad guys, you kind of like you look at them and you go, well, come on, these guys are idiots that are running towards the bad guys. But you know, keeping something from your characters in in story and in you know in the sort of the structure and the craft of the telling of the tale just it felt more impactful to me it felt more uh how the thing would be perceived because we, we, we kind of look at these books as if they are legends of this time and if you're reading the legends of this time you don't want the author to point out something that you will learn by seeing by doing you know i want the plot to to be revealed through action, not by me telling you it. So that was, you know, that was that was lying behind the decision to, you know, keep it a my God. Even though a lot of people would know that that they that they were traitors, you know, the characters didn't. And I wanted, you know, the reader to be in the shoes of the characters, even though you know that they are going to turn bad. If you know the lore beforehand and you know they're going to turn bad, it still it means something when the characters have that revealed to them and you're there with them when it's revealed yeah no i like it it feels very organic to the setting and i like because i've i've tested the theory and it's worked so far that you can kind of introduce someone to 40k through 30k all the basic beats are there and i like that they can read this and they are in the same shocked position that i was the first time and that these characters are is they know like these are the good space marines these are the bad space marines all of a sudden oh wait they're all the bad is just this perfect gut punch that i love that you decided to do even if people knew it was going to happen already on the off chance well maybe this is someone's first book yeah that's actually something that's good that's sorry go ahead sorry (laughs) that's something that's uh that's core to the reading of these books is that uh a lot of people who read them they know how it ends they they know a lot of the big beats of the story. You know they know what happens at Prospero. They know what happens um, on Istvan and so on. They know what happens to Ferris and so on. And a lot of the big beats they know. The the trick uh, is to try and tell them the story they know while weaving in the story they don't know. And one of our mantras was always bring something new to the table. Have have some layers beneath what we thought we knew that changes your perceptions of the things that you. Oh well, I know what this is, but that those extra layers underneath it give a different skew and flavour, cast a different light on it. So that and if we could, we we knew that if we could do enough of that earlier in the stories, then it would cast into doubt everything subsequent to that. That suddenly every every truth that you held as sacred suddenly you're going going well i don't know anymore i'm not sure is that true is my thinking behind this true and that you know that's the key to keeping you know engagement and interest in stories that people think they know i mean i definitely felt like you i mentioned that earlier but that's how i felt about ferris that i went in like i already know what happens to this guy and suddenly even though i already knew he's what to die i was like no <laughs> uh so uh 
feel like I keep cutting you off, or because I give you opportunity, no. but then so. <laughs> no, that was my full well, question. There. All right. Well, then what I wanted to next thing I want to ask is so one thing that I've always liked about the the Primarchs, and it was made explicit in uh, I'm not sure if it was in False Gods or Horus Rising. I don't remember which one, but the idea that each Primarch is a representation of a aspect of the emperor except for sanguinius who's basically just the emperor but toned down so (laughs) and and i like how that a lot of times that seems to extend in this kind of web way where the uh the the astartes the named ones tend to be some aspect of their primarch right again you have literal narrative that supports this idea with gene seed and whatnot but I think it's particularly interesting with Fulgrim because Fulgrim, you know, seems to represent if if Horus is the emperor's like ambition, then and I, I have to use this word specifically, then Fulgrim is the emperor's perfectionism and drive for perfectionism. But then that word perfect is itself such an important individual concept to this entire book and looking at how different members of the emperor's children interpret what being perfect means is fascinating to me because perfection is such a hard concept i think to try to illustrate but we look at someone like the very eminently hateable lucius and how lucius wants to be a perfect swordsman or we look at saltaros himself who is in some ways the perfect line officer which makes him kind of an Makes him in contrast to Solomon Demeter, yeah, who's kind of like the his very author. ordinariness is what makes him exceptional. Yeah, exactly. So I I want to ask like, what were the kind of thought processes processes that went into how does each one of these characters approach perfection? Because that feels like it would have been an interesting challenge to me. Yeah, it was it was a way of because it's a way of embodying exactly what you're talking about. Because we in the the Index of Starters article that we wrote. Uh, back in the day about the Empress children it was they were very much about the idea that their individual leaders would embody a particular aspect uh, and that all the you know everything flowed from them you know like the character of a squad would flow from their sergeant the character of the sergeant came from the captains above him the character of the captains came from Fulgrim so you know it's like what's to say the, the fish rots from the head down you know because because Fulgrim is corrupted, that corruption passes down to him. But again, using the metaphor for the gene seed, it was like, well, every every iteration of that passed down comes with its own like twist of a mutation, you know, like in quotation marks, you know, not maybe not a literal genetic mutation, but that drive, that thirst for perfection is perverted in some individual way each time it goes down the chain of command to the point where by the time it gets to the the line soldiers there's a thousand variants of that embodied within each one of them and you know perfect to them is something unique you know each one of them embodies or tries or seeks the perfection in you know one particular thing and some of them might be very similar but they've got you know that hair's breadth of difference between what his version of perfection is and the, the guy next to him is um, so it was it was very deliberately designed uh, to be, you know, each to, to embody the thing above them, and whatever that was, they would take their character from that. I feel and like there's even... lots of avenues for, for trying different things. You know, like some of them were, you know, trying their hand at art and failing terribly at it. Some of them were like Lucius going 
down the Marshall route to extreme. You know, it's this every every one of them takes that notion of you know a strength taken too far becomes a weakness. I feel like even that idea is itself taken to an extreme with uh oh is it is it Marius or Marius I I know uh, Marius yeah, yeah Marius thank you where who takes one failure as an excuse to become an extreme sycophant. That idea of from the top down, even Marius himself is the perfection of that. Perfection one. Yeah. By, by like, I'm just going to be exactly what the person above me wants me to be. <laughs> so. Yeah. Cause that's, he, he's taken, you know, cause like the, like a true leader, you know, trains the people be- below them to be his replacement, essentially. You know, like you want to train your people so well that if you go under a bus, one of them can step up and take your place. And Marius is this sort of the ultimate embodiment of that. So like I, he almost feels that I could be that if I yes man enough, I will be like Fulgrim. I will, you know, it's the, that sub, that subconscious or you know mirroring of people in authority above you to try and be uh, them. You know, when you've got a powerful boss. You find a lot of people will emulate their behaviors to try and ingratiate themselves into their presence and elevate themselves that. And that's kind of what Marius is. And then uh, my last last bit on, on that particular line of questioning is simply Lucius. <laughs> I don't even know if I have a question. All I know is that the first three books made me want to shoot Erebus twice. And now I want to shoot <laughs> Lucius twice. So he, he was, yeah, he was such a joy to write because he's such a, oh, such a horrible, horrible, yeah. wonderful character. There's, there's something particularly enjoyable about a character written so hateably. Like I, I now <laughs> I call it the Joffrey principle because that was the first character to introduce me to the concept. But like the fact that you yeah. can love a character because of how much you hate them so yeah it's very much the, the Elijah Koo principle from the Gaunt's Ghost books you know he, he was such a great I mean I, I the page lit up when he was on it to the point where it's like I almost don't want him to finally get his comeuppance at some point yeah I, I remember there was this scene in Fulgrim where Lucius is just talking with Eidolon and Eidolon's been a, a, a ponce since we've you know met him and they're having this conversation and Eidolon's like uh, what about Solomon Demeter? And Lucius is like, oh, don't worry. I made sure he was dead. And then we laugh about it. And I'm just sitting here reading this like, you slimy son of a... <laughs> yeah, that was that, the scene where he finally betrays the guys in the ground was one... That, it was weirdly hard to write just because it was such a, a terrible betrayal that he convinces... Uh, his former battle brother to murder all these guys, but actually they're they're not the you know he convinces them that they're bad guys they've broken in it's like oh I must kill them all and then he does and he's like yeah no actually they were your friends see ya yeah and, that, and not that, just that too but it feels like and I think me and Ulrich touched on this Solomon Demeter felt to me like the ideal of what an emperor's children exactly is. he's the ones so. that they would have been and should have been had things not gone terribly wrong for them he was the one who stayed truest to what an emperor's children warrior should be yeah yeah so for his for his fall to be so <laughs> grimdark that that moment <laughs> there is like it's literally a microcosm of the entire Legion. And that, yeah, that scene was really hard to read. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. And it, the, as, if I find it 
challenging to go through if i have to you know go into the lava to to write it then i know that it, i i know i hope i think there's a good chance the reader will find it that way too Auric. yeah yeah no that one again it's all stuff we know is coming we, we've we, we've read this we know what happens but it's still one of those things it's like your favorite movie you've seen it a hundred times you know what the ending is but the big emotional beats still hammer home and you thought you hated Lucius before, but somehow in this book, you just take it that next extra level. You're like, all oh, more. you smarmy little, why did you get to live? <laughs> Not just get to live, but become one of the most, for lack of a better term, busted characters in 40K. <laughs> just die already. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you better you not be the, the one to try to do it. protection of a god, it's kind of hard to put them down. Yeah. Uh, so this is something I was kind of wondered about. You talked about last time that there basically was a writer's camp. You guys all got together. You planned out the first three books and the story. So with this one, was this a pitch you brought to Games Workshop? Like, hey, I want to write The Fall of Fulgrim. And they go, hey, Graham, do you want to write The Fall of Fulgrim? Uh, I, I know exactly the answer to that. You know, that's not even what I have to think about casting my mind back. I remember the very... The very, very, very first meeting we had in the GW boardroom when uh, Alan Merritt was laying out, this is the vision we have for the heresy and giving us a sort of 101 for the vibe and theme and tone that we were looking at along with the editors. And we, we did a quick sort of run through of the major beats of the early portion of the heresy. And I, I remember sitting next to Jim Swallow and when uh, Alan and Nick were going through the the Fulgrim and Ferris kind of arc, what we what we saw that, that or what we knew of it certainly at that point, and I remember writing on my pad like filled the whole page this pad and circled it again and again and again, just said I must write this. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know as as Nick finished talking, I was like held the pad up in front of him, so like from the before we'd even before one word of the first book was even written i knew that's the one i want to do because that brother versus brother and that final payoff on the the black sands of istvan i was like that's that's got so much wonderful drama and emotional horror in it that i was like I, I, i've got to write that book so you know once once uh false once we've done the original trilogy and you know jim was off doing flight of the eisenstein you know i i at this point, I was like, I can't remember if Nick came to me, but I knew that I was going to be doing Fulgrim, but I didn't know exactly where it was going to fall on the schedule and so on. But with Jim doing his one, I, I remember talking to Nick at one point saying, look, you know, we need to, we need to do Fulgrim soon because otherwise the span of time that it will need to cover in its book will be so large in, in one book that it will feel really bitty jumping. And then 10 years later, they were over here and then six months you know it just it'll feel a bit disjointed so we, we need to do it now um but yeah I, I knew from the very beginning of this adventure that i was what i wanted to do fulgrim that's really cool that you just kind of latched on to the i want to tell the tragedy that's and then kind of reverse engineered like this is where i'm getting now how do i get my character to here yeah that's a really cool yeah. way to design it all right well so um my next question is actually more of a general author question. I, I wanted to spend more time talking about the book specifically because I've adored Fulgrim, but I do like asking at least uh, yeah, yeah. one more general question, which is, sorry, hold on. Anyway, 
which is how do you, as an author, uh, define the term literary success? What does that mean for you? Ooh, literary success. I mean, uh, I think as long as one person other than me enjoys the book, I will qualify that as a literary success. I mean, you know, that, that's all you can hope for. I mean, I, I, I write the best book I can. I write the book that I would want to read. And if people buy it and read it, and if one person enjoys it, great. I count that as a success. I like that. It feels to me like the kind of thing that aspiring writers should definitely keep in mind. So, well, <laughs> well you know, I, I always have a beef with that term, aspiring writers. It's like, do you write? Yes. Then you're a writer. You know what? You I'll take it. I'll rescind my statement. Unpublished. I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase my statement. I think it's a term. I think it's a phrase that writers should keep in mind then. Yeah. Yeah. If you write, you're a writer. You may be published. You may be unpublished, but you're still a writer. I'll totally take it. <laughs> or All right. Uh, here's a fun little one. I've always kind of wondered, what was your favorite part of the book to write? Uh, oh, that's an easy one. Uh, the Maraviglia at the end, the giant Slaneshi inspired opera. Oh God! Yeah, just, that just one. Just it was, it was a chance to pay off everything, everything that we'd been building to for the entire novel, got to play out in glorious, dicky, bloody Technicolor. I will definitely yeah. say I'm not a Slanesh player, but the second one of those Marines picked up an instrument and blew a part of it, I literally wrote my notes in giant bold letters: "Noise Marine, Noise Marines." <laughs> yeah, the birth of the Noise Marines and the the first time we see the demonettes manifesting through the the chorus and the, that, you know, society like, you know, the movie society where everything goes all, they all do the shunting and coming together in this giant squishy monster thing. It, that was my sort of version of that where everything just goes to hell. Yeah, we've used the term uh, cinematic moments a lot throughout this, which is any moment we're reading where we can clearly see this in our head on a big screen. And this one, we just kind of, yeah, no, this is a cinematic horror show of you're sitting, yeah. you're watching it happen, you want to look away, but it is just so... Oh. It's so it's filled with grotesque beauty that you can't not stare at it. Yeah, like, I don't know what I'm witnessing, but it, it's a thing, all right? Yeah, and if I don't look at it, will I forever be kicking myself that I didn't see this once-in-a-lifetime thing, even yeah, as it, horrible as it might be? It feels like, you know, if, you, if you're we're pitching this to David Cronenberg, you're like, hey, read this scene. You want to do this, right? This, this is you. This is <laughs> he, you. He would, be he like, would have like, oh, yeah. No, no, I like this. What's this book called? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that sequence was and the fact that it ends. So, I don't know, quiet with just the, the sweet music of my emperor's children was uh, a little haunting. It's the right word for it, I think. Yeah. Well, no. the same. That that the way that ends is the way that I ended the book as well, with that that sort of quiet moment of all this, you know, Fulgrim in the ruins of the the, the opera house as the lights just dim, and he walks off stage. It's the we've arrived moment that you know they're well and truly gone. Yeah. Well, yeah, like days I... of legion are are days of legion are gone at that point, and then with Estevan. The Imperium is gone, or what the the dream of the Imperium is gone. I guess it's funny because I was in my brain I was associating the opera with like the swamp scene from uh, from False mm-hmm. Gods for for doing some of the things, but I guess really it's probably closer in anatomy to the uh, to the fight on the on the Eisenstein with the the Nurgled up Marines. The idea of like showing 
the chapter or the legion mm-hmm. fully corrupt what does that mean for in this particular case so and I thought it was done extremely well. So I might, my girlfriend actually collects Slanesh. And so she was in the room when we were recording that book club and she hasn't read the book, but she was listening to me describe the opera. And I turned, her eyes were big. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I keep meaning to get my get Hedonite's army put together just because it's just cool. Well, plus you can take a, uh, uh, Sigvard? Sigvald? Sigvald, Sigvald. the Magnificent. I've seen people kitbash Sigvald with Marathi to make a a Fulgrim model, which makes me happy. Yeah, it's the Marathi one I've seen kitbash to make a Fulgrim, and I've been so tempted to do that. Yeah, I just didn't consider that. I I mean, I'm I'm a a competent painter at best, so I'd I'd be just, I don't know that I could do a model as glorious and perfection-driven as Fulgrim. I don't think I could do him justice. I think I would fall, you know, onto his path if I try and fail. <laughs> uh, just keep Ostian's words in your in your mind. So, uh, so I, I have. I, I hope this is a fun question. To me, it feels like a fun question. Was there anything that you put in Fulgrim, maybe even hid in Fulgrim, that only a few people find or notice, or something that you wish more people would bring up to you that, like, you're particularly interested in or proud of, or something? Uh, yeah, there's there's a ref, there's a, I mean, a, a bunch of people have pointed out, or they they found it, or because it wasn't, you know, wasn't massively hidden, but there's yeah, there's a there's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference and and gag in it at one point. Oh yeah, I I missed that, but I haven't actually read Hitchhiker's Guide. I've read portions of it, so I'm running through my brain because I have, and I'm trying to think what it was. Uh, it's in one of the. I think it's in the bit where the combined forces of the Empress Children and the Iron Hands attack the Diaspora uh, fleet, and it talks about how they're blasting all their ships to bits and how there's a one of the ships, the the Heart of Gold, and probably survived destruction, and you know the, the oh, Heart of Gold is the ship, yeah. and it's got the infinite improbability drive. Okay, oh. yeah, I can't believe I've missed that all these years. <laughs> well, now you have it. <laughs> there you go. Secrets revealed. <laughs> All right, I think oh, I think we each have time for maybe one more. So go yeah, ahead. I'm gonna pick what I I hope I think I hope is an easy one. So how is writing the character of Fulgrim a different challenge than writing Horse? And we kind of talked about it in that they are they're different things. Horus is your buddy. You aspire. You know you you want to be with him. He's your friend. Fulgrim feels aloof and kind of different, but I just kind of want to know, was there really a challenge in writing these two different characters? Because there's already kind of the inherent yeah. challenge of writing a Primarch. Like, I have written Space Marines, now I have to write who the Space Marines look up to. Yeah. I mean, the Space Marines are, I mean, certainly the, the Primarchs, the challenge with writing them is, you know, they are the, the best, the smartest, the fastest, the toughest, the strongest in any conversation they're in. And trying to make them, depending on the Primarch, obviously, but make them relatable. You know, you understand. You know, they you want them to be brilliant, but you don't want to hate them for being brilliant. Um, so you don't want to write them in a way that makes them feel that they are utterly aloof and beyond any sort of human comprehension. I mean, I mean, yeah, Horus is the guy you would, without question, follow into hell. You know, he he commanded you to. I mean, he wouldn't command you to. That's the thing. He would say i'm going 
and you just go with him because he's Horus. You know, everything he does is to make you feel that you're the most important person in the world. That without you, this attack will fail. Fulgrim is a very different character. I mean, he he puts himself on the pedestal as a thing to be admired, as a thing to aspire to. You know, he, he's, he's, he's a ruthless self-promoter, but in a way that makes it not feel like that. You know, he's the, he's the guy who's like, well, me, brilliant? Well, I, if you if you say I am, then I go, <laughs> okay, well, you know, I would never think that, but if you think that, that's okay. So, you know, he's he's kind of somebody you admire for their their skill. You know, you can I can look at somebody as being, wow, you're an amazing painter, artist, musician, whatever. You might not be a very nice person, but your skill is admirable. And I want, you know, that's like the moth to the flame thing. They're like, you know, I want to be close to people who are brilliant at things. And that's, you know, and Fulgrim burns so very brightly in that regard that people just want to be near them because of their skill. I mean, you know, I've I've met several, you know, creative types over the years who are amazing at what they do, but they're assholes. <laughs> but they still have a lot of people clustered around them who want to be near them because of that skill, because of the way they made them feel in their music, their art, their writing, whatever it is. So Fulgrim was, he was very much written to be that guy. All right. Uh, I, I'm going to, I want to follow Jeffrey, the question. Oh, sorry. No, I didn't. I was just responding. That was, I, I like that. It's a really interesting insight into the characters. I want to follow the Primark question with another um, opposite side question, which is we haven't talked about this at all, but this is the first of the heresy books to have an entire, if not an entire paragraph, certainly an entire sequence and actually several devoted to a Xenos with the, mm-hmm. the Eldar sequences. And we have a, you know, a Farseer, uh, I cannot pronounce his name, Wathi? Ulthway. Ulthway? All right. A Farseer, Ulthway. And, in some ways, that sequence feels like it's a little disconnected, but in other ways, it feels like it's extremely vital. So I would just like to know what the like the behind the scenes of including the Eldar in this particular book, yeah. even if just for that bit, was. The, I mean, the Eldar. That's that scene in particular where Eldrad tries to warn Fulgrim. I mean, that that's that's been in the background since before the book was written. Uh, and it's such a you know an important moment you know the far seer of one of the Eldar craft worlds coming to try and warn Fulgrim that he's in real danger you know because the Eldar are a little bit trying to you know a, a, a tip of the scale here a motion there to direct the future and this is one of these moments in time that Eldrad realizes that if I can if I can turn Fulgrim from this moment we're golden. You know, so many bad things will not happen if I do that. And even though as a farseer, he probably knows this attempt is doomed, he can't not make the attempt. Um, plus, it was, it was just, you know, it was a fun opportunity to use the Eldar because we hadn't seen them yet in the story. And as, you know, a, a race who can see the future, it would be weird not to have them pop up at some point. And since they were already in the lore as having trying to, to warn Fulgrim at this point, it, you know, they, we had to have that scene in it, and it was you know having a, you know, there's, there's, there are there are few scenes more fun to write than Fulgrim Primark versus an avatar of Cain. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. 
And you know, even I know there's a few. I've seen a few things about. Oh, Fulgrim he tries to strangle the Avatar to death, and it's like, well, no. I mean, he's 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 fighting a thing that looks like a human in terms of its anatomy, arms, legs, and head, and so on. And he's fighting it the way he would fight anything. I mean, yes, the fact that he cannot choke the the breath out of it is kind of irrelevant. You know, he's fighting it. You know, and if I rip its head off and crush its neck, that's probably going to hurt it in some regard. Basic anatomy carries across, you know. Yeah, even if you're a being out. of molten fire and rage and spirit of war, it probably doesn't help getting your head ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't know if you don't try. <laughs> exactly. All right, Ulrich, you get the last question. All right, we'll okay, pick. Okay, last let's, question. Let's go. Our last question. Oh, here's one. So, what do you think of this? sentiment that a lot of people have that 40k is just one big adventure series where the horus heresy is just one long tragedy uh, i think that's, that's fair i mean this the 40k series is i mean it's not series but the 40k books are almost like a like a serial in the sense of you know the old you know archaeal republic saturday morning television serials that they were they were ongoing you know it was always a new adventure it was always a new story to tell whereas the the heresy has a very definite beginning and it will have a very definite end. You know, that's something that 40K does not have. You know, there's always going to be stories to tell in 40K, whether it's, you know, Space Marines or Astra Militarum or Xenos books, whatever. There's an infinite palette to play with there. Whereas the heresy, well, we know where it ends and we're, you know, we're so very close to it right now. Um, I, and there are, you know, undoubtedly there are still moments that we will come back to, I'm certain, at some point. You know, we we cannot hope to have told all the stories that there are to tell in the Heresy era. Even when we get to the, the final book of the Siege of Terror, there'll be more stuff to tell. Um, I think that's, you know, there's, there's great things to mine there. I'm, I'm sure we'll go back and tell some of those stories. No, that's that's kind of how I've described. Like a lot of people, they've asked me, "What is the horror?" Like, what's that so, Like, well, I, I, I realized I, I didn't answer that the, the second part of that question in the sense of that. Yes, I fully agree that the tragedy aspect. I mean, the heresy is kind of a a gothic fantasy sci-fi analog to Paradise Lost. You know, it's the the, the yes. war in heaven. The, the, the fall, the fall of Satan. Yeah, I mean that, that's the, the, you know, the the arc of the heresy very closely follows that. I mean that's, you know, I mean I I, it's, I, mean, I say explicitly, but to me it was explicit uh, when Horus goes into the, you know, the the Davenites uh, serpent lodge, you know, he's Perfect. in there for nine days, which was, you know, it took, you know, according to Paradise Lost, it took Satan nine days to fall from heaven to hell. So there, there's lots of little nods to numerical things or i mean we've, we've quoted bits and pieces from paradise lost throughout the series yeah no i was saying when people you know that don't know 40k don't know horace heresy ask me what i'm reading it's like it's a series that's uh, 60 70 books long and they go really I'm like well imagine if you took the fall of the roman empire and you combined it with a shakespearean tragedy and you mixed it all together with some sci-fi that's what you get and they're like okay that actually makes a I that's a, that's a positive you know, I can understand that. And it's like, you know, you got to tell each little individual story of how you got to the fall. I mean. Yeah. Because by the time this... you get to the final book, if those pieces are not in place, 
the impact would be so much less. And and Fulgrim really is a tragedy. I mean, there's no other oh, way sure. I'd really classify it Absolutely. as... It, it cleaves to the, st- the structure of a tragic story beat for beat. Yeah, and, and, it, and I told and I told Oric when we got to the end, and I, I don't know how to say this properly. I'm still getting my thoughts together, my words together on this. But like when I get into the got into the Heresy series, I expected to like it, certain just by nature of being a 40k fan. So sure. far, I think all the books have been really good, even though I am biased. I feel like not to not to gild the lily, but I feel like Fulgrim is this kind of different level I didn't expect. Like, whereas the first four are all really good, but they're really good in a way I kind of expected from a series of books based on a tabletop game, Fulgrim feels really good in a way that I just, I didn't expect from that kind of source material. Not that, again, I love the source material, it's probably my favorite fictional universe, but again, I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say, but you get the kind of feeling that I'm trying to put down. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, 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 I love... Just, I love a good adventure story. I love just a, a rattling, a good story, a simple story, well told that goes from A to B to C to D. Love it. But if a story, you know, and this is not to sound, you know, try and get into the pretentious weeds or anything, but if a story can say more than just what it is about, you know, it's like if a story is more than just the things that happen in it, if it can bring some elevation to some grander theme or grander scale to it that leaves you with something after the fact then it's done something good this you know again there's nothing wrong with a simple story that starts exactly what it means to start and finishes where you know it's going to start uh, end sorry um but I, I just always love that stories that can be one thing but be about something else you know like the, you know the example you know the, the a trite example is like die hard for example is a story where terrorists take over a building and a cop stuck in the building defeats them. And it's like, actually, it's a story about a guy trying to reconnect with his wife while terrorists attack. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's a surface level read, but there's this, the, te- the subtext behind it. There's the theme, the premise, you know, some deeper message being conveyed by the events that are can be read at a surface level and enjoyed. But there's something, you know, you try and impart more of that into it. And if you succeed then the reader will, will take that from it. Even if they don't consciously realize they've taken it away, they'll still go away having felt moved. And again, lofty ambitions aside, if you if you can move somebody, if you can emotionally connect with them, if you can have the empathy to br- draw the reader in and feel something, then you've succeeded. And that, that's my intent with Fulgrim was to draw the reader in so that they were walking alongside everybody in that story and felt the highs and the lows and the gut punches and the you know the fist in the air moments along with the characters well i think that's a wonderfully positive point to to conclude our our conversation on (laughs) yeah couldn't ask for more no thanks again for getting me on it i you know it's it's been real fun to to revisit fulgrim because it's been a, a you know like i say it's been what would it be? Probably like 14, 14 years since I wrote Fulgrim. So you know, I was I was dipping back into the book, sec- certain sections of it to remind myself of bits, and you know, I, I had to sort of, I find myself, oh, yeah, I remember that bit, and then 
I'm like 30 pages deep and it's like, oh wait, you know, I'm not here to read the whole book. I'm just dipping in to refresh myself on it. So, you know, going back into this and kind of remember what I was thinking, what I was feeling, what I was trying to do with sections, different sections of it was really fun. So, Well, as additional thanks for, for coming on and chatting with us, it's at this point we give you the, the special guest branded box that you can stand on and plug <laughs> Anything you want to plug to the people listening? Anything I want to plug? Um, well, I'm, I'm in one of those rare spots where I don't really have anything to plug at the moment, other than uh, if you if you haven't if you've read any of my Ultramarines books, it would be lovely if you could dive back in to Uriel and Pisanius's adventures in the Swords of Calth, uh, which is my a, a, relatively new story of them back in action it's been a while since i've told an ultramarine story um and if you're not quite up to date with the siege of terror uh, sons of Sel- sons of the selenar and fury of magnus would be right up your alley all three of those books are currently sitting on my to read pile excellent that's what i like to hear next time we speak they should be on the have read pile i'm hoping <laughs> Well, let's see. I mean, if we if we get together again, I'm trying to think what the next one would be. Uh, Mechanicum is the Mechanicum, next one. Mechanicum, I think. Line. Yeah. And how many how many books until we get to Mechanicum, or because I don't know. I the, think, think think that's the ninth book. I think. Ninth book. Yeah. Okay, so it'll be a hot minute because we're Mechanicum's we're gonna, a ways out. We're gonna take a little break from Heresy to read some yeah. like other other books. So. <gasps> heresy. <laughs> that <laughs> is itself heresy. Or lack of heresy at this time. Cool. Well, like I guess I mean, if you if you Follow fancy me. chatting once we get to that that book, I'm always up for a chinwag. Well, we're probably also gonna you know read some 40k books, so maybe we'll read some of your. I'd be curious to see these books that got Ulrich into Ultramarines. Mm. So excellent, and see how the flavor varies. Yeah. No, it'd be great. All right. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and talking with us. Thank you all for listening. We hope you guys have enjoyed this. Yep. My pleasure. See you guys soon. All right.